Welcome to the UC Berkeley Data Science Education Podcast. We're happy you're listening in today. In this space, you'll hear from a variety of distinguished data science educators and professionals. The individuals we'll speak with are diverse in experience and perspective, but share the common goal of shaping the future of data science education. Our idea is to have some informal conversations with the goal of creating community and let people hear from practitioners in this growing new field. My name is Eric Van Dusen from Data Science Undergraduate Studies in the Division of Computing, Data Science, and Society at UC Berkeley, and I'll be leading our conversation today. And my name is Kalechi Nebadam, also from Data Science Undergraduate Studies. I'm working as an intern with the division's external pedagogy team, and I'll be helping out today too. Hey, today we have Brad Boytek with us. Um, could you give us a brief introduction to yourself and tell us about what you're working on in this space? Yeah, hi, my name is Bradley Wojtek. I'm a professor in cognitive science and the Haligioli Data Science Institute at UC San Diego. Um, and I run a neuroscience research lab. We sit at the interface of neuroscience and data science. And I taught the first undergraduate data science course at UC San Diego and uh, helped set up the undergraduate data science major. And uh, I'm excited to be chatting with you all today. Awesome. Yeah, so we're interested. Uh, you have this class, CogSci 108, I guess, uh, which is a big scaled data science class. Um, can you tell us about the adventure of building that class? Yeah, COGS 108, which is uh, data science and practice, is a class I think I created in 2017 with a former PhD student who worked in my lab, Tom Donahue. Um, Tom is a postdoc now at uh, Columbia University, um, and he also is very much at the interface of uh, data science and neuroscience. And uh, I had initially created COGS 9, which is Intro to Data Science, which is, I guess, somewhat similar to what is it, Data 8 you all have? Uh, not quite the same scale. Uh, I, I think we we are capped out at about 500 students. I know Data 8 uh, every semester is above 1,000, if I understand. So our Intro to Data Science class, uh, initially this COGS 9 class, was created as a uh, survey course. So there is no programming or anything like that. We're on the quarter system, so we only have 10 weeks. So it's hard to sort of do it all at the same pace that maybe like a semester system can do. And so COGS 9 is meant to be the first foray into the world of data um, for all of its goods and all of its ills. Uh, and so we created that class with the intent of teaching students how to think about data and the power and the peril. Um, you know, we teach them about uh, um, amazing things that can be done, amazing fun studies and, and things like that, but also the pitfalls and, you know, the, the joke that's not really a joke that I tell my students is, you know, I want them to go out and do good in the world. I don't want to see them uh, in five years testifying in front of Congress because of something that they did wrong. <laughs> um, whereas COGS 108, which is the data science and practice, was then, okay, you've learned about the, the power and the peril. You've now taken a couple of other courses that teach you how to do the programming and the stats and, and some basic, you know, ML and uh, things in Python. Now let's go out and find real world data sets that are truly messy, noisy, uh, and uh, let's have you extract some information from it. Um, and the creation of that course was really difficult initially. Tom and I spent a lot of work. We actually um, 
tapped several of our uh, star undergraduates who had TA'd or taken my intro class um, and uh, sort of paid them to help us build this course too. We wanted the undergrad perspective to make sure it wasn't going to be too easy or too hard. And the idea was, can we move past the traditional ML style classes where the students get handed these uh, like very clean, like MNIST types of data sets that like are very well characterized and, and annotated and stuff like that. And instead go out and like scrape data from public sources, from websites, uh, find publicly available data sets where there might be duplicate, there might be missing data, um, there might the missing data might be coded weirdly, uh, and have them figure out how to actually work with those kinds of messy real world data sets and bring them together. So, you know, to end of my long uh, answer to your relatively straightforward question, um, we take a pretty hard perspective on what data science is. And the pejorative, of course, is data science is like stats plus programming, where a data scientist is worse at both of those things than either a statistician or a developer. And we take the perspective that data science is truly something unique and different. It's not just stats plus programming. And the perspective that we take, at least at UC San Diego, is it's figuring out how to take heterogeneous data types and in, in the like actual, you know, uh, uh, technical sense of data types like strings and floats and ints and you know things like that um, and bring together these heterogeneous data types and figure out ways of uh, statistically finding a common reference frame so that you can then make comparisons across them. So how do you take images and videos and freeform natural language text uh, you know and all these things that people might post on social media and take those different data types figure out a way to align them and make it so that you can ask statistically meaningful questions. And that's the point of this COGS 108 class. And so every uh, group has to do that. They have to find disparate data sets, two different data sets, and try and mash them together in some way that is meaningful. Um, very difficult to scale to the 500 students that it is every quarter. Um, but I think we've got it somewhat under control now. People seem to be able to teach it. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I hear from a lot of students later on that they got value from it and helped them get jobs. So that's kind of the goal. So I have like a personal thing when I, when I look you up and, and I, and I look up these classes and I see that it's an open source project, right? It's like GitHub and Sphinx and the way that you've like documented everything in the process and probably like your iterations over the years. Um, I'm just like a huge fan of people who do this. Um, I was wondering if you just sort of comment on that process of, of treating this curriculum like, like an open source project. Yeah, I, I guess some of that ethos of documenting the process and making things open source come uh, from, I, I worked in industry for a while. Um, so way back when, uh, before my postdoc days, I was uh, uh, the first data scientist at Uber back when it was an eight person startup. And, um, you know, I can have a lot to say about those years, um, but uh, the Uber didn't really fit me uh, very well, we'll say. Uh, but I learned a lot. There's an amazing group of engineers and developers that worked at Uber at that early, uh, early years. And um, I learned a ton from them. Coming from academia where, you know, especially in the biomedical sciences side where I came from, PhD at Berkeley in neuroscience, everybody had their own way of doing things. Everybody had their own code that lived on their own computers. And I remember a, a friend of mine back then, Ariel Rokem, he's now at the University of Washington, a big open science advocate, um, uh, teaching me GitHub. <laughs> and he's like, no, this is really important. You should learn this. And I was like, I don't understand why this would ever be useful. Um, 
And then I started working in industry, saw the power of, uh, you know, just sort of that basic version control. And then when I started teaching, we realized uh, that there's that same power could be leveraged, right? If I'm teaching a class and there are things that work and things that don't, uh, the things that are working and the things that don't work, we can track, right? We can have as issues in GitHub uh, to sort of make notes for ourselves that when we're teaching this next time as we're prepping the course to make some changes. Um, and then we realized we put in all this work, other people we knew were interested in teaching this kind of stuff but didn't know how to go about doing it. We may as well let them take advantage of the work that we were doing. I mean, there's no point in keeping all that um, closed, right? We are running a real world experiment with hundreds if not thousands of students uh, on teaching data science in a way that, you know, isn't really very common. Um, and if we kept that information to ourselves, that makes education worse. <laughs> That's kind of how it comes down, right? Um, and so we should probably open up as much of it as we can. We take that same ethos in my research too, in my lab. We do a fair amount of software development in my lab too, um, on the neuroscience side. And um, there is power to easy to use, well-documented code, right? It's, I can theoretically argue all day long that something in neuroscience is important and people should be analyzing their data this way and not that way. But if it's just theoretical, you're not really convincing very many people. But if you tell people you should analyze data this way, not that way, and then you give them very well-documented, clean code that is easy to run on their data, they will adopt your way instead of that way because your way is is easy to understand, right? And so maybe it's um, somewhat manipulative, but we felt very strongly about how data science should be taught. And so if we, uh, you know, did it that way and then made the code and materials available to help teach, teach it that way, we could sort of also push our agenda of teaching data science um, as more than just stats plus programming. Nice. You know, I would love to use that to segue into a, a next question of like, do you bring anything from your cognitive science side, you know, into sort of like how the this the, what you're advocating is an approach for data science education is sort of novel and 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 creatively like making a new something new. Are, is your cognitive science part sort of informing that? Absolutely. What I was going to say was it drives me nuts that people uh, to see places that teach data science as though it's just machine learning. Um, the example I give, uh, one of the quotes that I really like, I think the quote is from Hal Abelson, um, which is when a field is just getting started out, it's very easy to confuse the field with the tools that it uses. And what instead we should be focusing on is what is the essence of what people are doing. Um, and so when I was starting to put together this curriculum, I was looking back at um, the history of other related domains. Like when, when did computer science first start getting taught? And I think the first undergraduate degree program in computer science was Purdue University. And the arguments against creating, and this is the early 1960s, against creating a computer science department was essentially, we already have math and logic and electrical engineering. That's all computers are. Why do we need a computer science department? Computer science isn't a science. Computers are a thing. And, you know, of course, Turing and, and many of the early pioneers, um, you know, had been laying the groundwork for the theoretical foundations of computer science is separate from the devices, right? And uh, I think it's very easy to get data science confused with the essence of the tools that data scientists tend to use, which are machine learning and, you know, uh, AI and deep learning and stuff like that. Um, and so when we were starting out at UC San Diego, 
uh, initially the departments that were, were developing the data science undergraduate major were math and computer science. But then when they saw my data science class over in cognitive science exploding, um, they asked me, you know, to, to chat and we had some coffee, you know, conversations with some colleagues I did. And we started talking about, well, you know, the important side is, you know, we, we, for, um, better force are narcissistic beings. And so a lot of the data that we collect are about ourselves to understand ourselves, right? Uh, advertising to manipulate people and so on. That is also the realm of human beings and human thought and brains and, you know, people using these, uh, data, um, that's an HCI kind of thing. How do they interact with these data sets? So we can't ignore the human element. And so that's where the cognitive science came into play, which is these are data about and for people, not always, but often. And so once you start entering the realm of using data about other people, you start getting into issues of ethics and privacy and cultural biases and data collection strategies, that, that is separate from just the math and programming. And so uh, that was a core element. And so the initial undergraduate data science major here was a joint degree between COGSI math and computer science. So on that note, in some of your readings, I've seen you also sort of advocated for data science as having sort of problem solving at a, as a core or like your view of the curriculum is like put trying to solve a problem as like a, as like a you know, part of the pedagogical technique. Yeah, um, we have somewhat the benefit of during my industry days, I got to meet uh, this guy, DJ Patel, who is Obama's uh, chief data scientist for the United States. Uh, so in the Obama administration, um, the, oh, what is it? Office of Science and Technology. Um, the, uh, head of science and technology ended up creating this position of chief data scientist for the United States. And that was DJ Patel, who has written quite a lot of pieces about data science. I mean, he was, he arguably co-created the term data science, um, as a job title from his days in LinkedIn. Um, he was the author of that sort of now infamous uh, data science is the sexiest job of the 21st century in the Harvard Business Review. And he's also a UCSD alum. And so he would, he would be around here uh, often. And we sort of tapped him as an advisor when we were creating this uh, degree as well. And I, I chatted with him quite a bit about this. And uh, one of his big things is like, look, you know, there's um, data science on the technical side, you have to know the machine learning and the technical skills and the stats and stuff like that. But that's like the minimum, right? That's a minimum bar that you need to be able to get across. Like what makes a truly great data scientist though, is this ability to think about and tackle complex real world problems that do not have clear answers, maybe not even clear questions but that's what you have to deal with in real world policy and decision-making oftentimes. How can you use data to inform these fuzzy questions, right? Um, and that's like a creative process. Uh, it's thinking creatively with data. And so that was something that I was thinking, how do we teach that kind of creative problem solving from a data perspective? And how do we inculcate that in our education and in our undergraduate uh, thinking? And so, uh, that the way that we ended up conceiving it was um, essentially like if you graduate from undergraduate you know, with a visual arts degree, you have your artist portfolio. That's evidence of the things that you have learned and the things that you have made. And so we created the undergrad data science major here with the same basic idea of having a data scientist portfolio. 
It's a series of computational notebooks that demonstrate your creative problem solving and thinking when you are working through these complex issues. And so that's what we wanted students to have is a portfolio, essentially, that can demonstrate not only their technical skills, but their ability to write and explain the questions and problems, their ability to work through the complexities and explicate those complexities in the writing and say, we can't actually know the answer to this. But if we take this data set and this data set and this data set and come, up, come at it and attack it from three different directions, we might not be able to solve it, but we can sort of narrow the, the answer space a little bit. Uh, by attacking it from multiple directions at once. And we wanted to be able to th have them demonstrate all of that. And so, yeah, that, that was, I mean, we've spent countless hours thinking about how to create this kind of undergraduate curriculum for the, for the students. Yeah, that's really cool. I wanted to know if you see data science approaches as a way to bring together people from different fields, like you're doing in your lab, bringing together the computer science with the neuroscience and the cognitive science and putting it all together and just combining all these different skills that people bring to the table. Yeah, absolutely. My biggest push right now is um, can I get my friends and collaborators and colleagues in the humanities and social sciences and arts to be involved with our educational endeavors at uh, the uh, HDSI, our Data Science Institute. I guess we could sort of step backwards a little bit, but one example is a, a colleague of mine, uh, Stuart Geiger, uh, who actually used to be also, I think, at Berkeley. Professor Geiger is in a uh, joint appointment between the Data Science Institute and Communication, which is a department in the social sciences. And he teaches um, data science and machine learning approaches to his social science students in communication. And his argument is great, which is they say, you know, why do we have to learn that? We don't believe that natural language processing, uh, you know, can um, replace critical text readings. Like, you, you know, you have to be able to engage with the text critically. You have to understand the social and political context in which texts are written and natural language processing automated tools don't get you there. And uh, Stewart's argument essentially to those students is yes, if you believe that, you have to also know the technical uh, side of natural language processing and where it fails in order to be able to engage with the people who are doing those technical approaches. You can't just say, I don't believe it works. You have to also be able to engage with the technical aspects, right? And so um, another side is um, going back to the concept of, or the argument that a lot of the data that we collect is about people and for people and by people. You know, how do we engage with communities whose data are being extracted with or without their knowledge and being used in ways that they might not even understand? Uh, that's not just a data science problem, right? Uh, and so we're working with a number of collaborators in the humanities and social sciences um, who do like community outreach work and stuff like that to say, can we collaborate with undergraduates in English, in, you know, political science, in uh, you know, the humanities and arts and pair them up with undergraduates in data science to make both fields better, right? So um, every undergrad in our data science program has to complete a capstone project, which is a two quarter long uh, mentored individual project that demonstrates, you know, the, the sum total of everything that they've learned. And a lot of those tend to be technical stuff. They'll do machine learning projects and so on. Um, it's UC San Diego, so a lot of it is also very biotech heavy. But what if we could pair those students so it's not just individual, but like they can do their capstone project, but with a student from the arts or humanities. And that way they can teach each other. 
right? So the student in the arts and the humanities can learn some of the technical side of things. And the student from the data sciences can learn from the arts and the humanities student, right? Um, data aren't just, data about people aren't just data points on a plot. These are real human beings and this represents some aspect of their life. If you have to go into the community from whom those data are being extracted and talk to those people, that gives them humanity. It takes those data points on those plots and it makes them people that you care about and that I think sticks with you. And so these are, you know, burgeoning efforts. These aren't, these aren't uh, finalized, but these are things that we're really sort of pushing towards right now um, is to try and bridge these communities. Yeah, that's super cool. I feel like a lot of the times, especially in college, it's very easy to get caught up in your own stuff, in your own major. So it's really great to bring people from different majors, especially such different communities like arts and humanities together. And I'm sure you guys get some really cool projects to like read out of that. <laughs> there are some really fun ones, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to take a pivot and talk a bit more about your research. So I'd love to hear you comment a bit more on how data science has driven the evolution of your research areas over time. Yeah, um, people on the podcast can't see it, but a couple of minutes ago, my wife walked in and, and uh, grabbed her stuff. <laughs> um, the, the, my evolution as a data scientist actually began um, from a collaboration with my wife uh, many years ago. Um, uh, so I, I'm a neuroscientist and during my PhD, I was interested in how do brain area X and brain area Y interact? No, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I don't have to go into the details because uh, those are important for the podcast, but um, in my naivete, I thought I could go to some website and click on brain area X and I would be able to see all of its inputs and outputs, like to see its map, right? Um, the, the neuroanatomy of how different brain areas connect and what different kinds of neurotransmitters, which are the chemicals that brain regions used, neurons used to communicate with each other, um, I thought that would exist and that didn't exist. Uh, and so instead I spent, you know, a couple months studying for my PhD qualifying exams down in the, you know, Berkeley Bookstacks reading papers from the 1970s that were published uh, describing the anatomy. Because once you know it, you don't have to do much more. You're like, yep, that one connects to that one. There you found it. Um, and that drove me nuts that that was the case. Uh, because that information was locked away in all of these papers. Why couldn't I easily find it? Um, and so years went by and I kind of kept stewing on this subtly over the years. And uh, back in like 2009, no, 2010, um, when my wife was pregnant with our, our son, our first child, um, we were trying to hide that fact from our friends because it was sort of too early. You don't want to, you know, uh, quite tell anybody yet until you're confident that, you know, the pregnancy is going to see through to the end. But it was becoming very obvious that we weren't going out. <laughs> um, and uh, we're sitting at home watching uh, reruns of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, my wife and I, and, uh, you, you know, avoiding going out with our friends uh, because it would be obvious if my wife wasn't, you know, drinking or something at dinner. Um, and I told her, you know, this is really bugging me. I think I have an idea of how to solve this issue. You know, if um, there's like 3 million peer-reviewed papers in neuroscience that are indexed in PubMed, which is run by the National Library of Medicine. It's the index of all the peer-reviewed biomedical scientific publications out there. And they have an API that allows you to search terms uh, uh, together. And so I said, you know, I bet I could write some code and say, you know, uh, if we have this database of like brain area names uh, and look at how often, you know, how many papers talk about brain area X and brain area Y together, the more frequently they're talked about in the more papers, the more confident we can be that maybe they're interacting with each other. And so my wife is like, oh, it's a pretty cool idea. Like, how are you thinking about doing it? Um, 
I was a MATLAB programmer in grad school. And so I said, you know, here's how I do it. My wife is a Python developer. And she said, oh, I could do this so much faster than you in Python. Um, and so my wife, while watching reruns of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, challenged me to a code off and she ended up winning. Um, and I liked her algorithm and her approach in Python. And I ended up, that's what ended up convincing me to switch to become a Python developer. But we ended up making this website um, and writing a paper that showed that you can algorithmically scrape text from these peer-reviewed publications and uh, you can find associations between the between topics. And so we went to publish this paper and he said, look, you know, it says that um, Parkinson's disease, which, which is a neurological disorder, is associated with a brain area called the substantia nigra and dopamine, which is the neurotransmitter that is lost during Parkinson's disease and uh, motor control, which is the function that is disrupted. Motor Patients with Parkinson's disease have tremors and they, they have very slow movements. Um, and we went to publish this and the peer reviewers like, yeah, we know already. I'm like, yeah, I know you know, but you're an expert that's been in the field for decades. Now math knows. Isn't that amazing? And just people weren't buying it back in 2010. Um, it took us forever to publish that paper. It got rejected from like 13 journals um, before we finally found a home for it. But that was my first foray into data science. I'd never done natural language processing or anything like that. But um, it was I was bugged by this problem. This is my cat who we can hear in the background. <laughs> Um, and, and we, we ended up writing this. And so I still think about how can we use this existing data in order to make the science that we do better. And so to end this long rant, um, what I'm focusing on now, and this is with a collaborator at McGill university, uh, Bratislav Mizik and, um, uh, one of his PhD students, Justine Hansen, um, which is for any arbitrary part of the brain, we know a lot of information. We know all about um, you know, what are the functions of that brain region? Is it a language brain region or is it memory or something like that? Um, and you can build up probabilistic models of what different brain areas do by this text mining of the peer reviewed scientific literature. But we also know what it's physically connected to. What are its anatomical inputs and outputs? We know the different neurotransmitters that exist there. We know how strongly different genes are expressed there. Um, we know how its neurons fire, what kinds of neurons there are. Uh, but those all exist in disparate data sets, in disparate databases. And so what we're doing is we're building a system that allows you to integrate all these disparate data sets that are different data types, function, structure, inputs, outputs, that's a graph, um, you know, cell types, which are categorical. And we can integrate them in a common reference frame of brain region. And once you have all of that in a common reference frame, you can actually use those uh, existing data sets to generate potentially new hypotheses for you. And so, for example, we could say, show me all of the brain regions that we think are implicated in Alzheimer's disease. Now, from this other database of cell types, show us the different cell types that exist that may be over or underexpressed preferentially in Alzheimer's-related brain regions, or what neurotransmitter transmitters might be over or underexpressed, or genes over or underexpressed in those Alzheimer's-specific brain regions. And then you can actually use that data integration process as a way of generating new hypotheses for you to start to uh, tackle. Um, and so in order to get there, though, you have to find the data, integrate the data, figure out how to integrate the data, bring them together in a way that is searchable, usable, findable, you know, all the fair, um, findable, accessible, uh, interoperable, reproducible. I might have gotten the uh, got it wrong. Um, right. Uh, the fair principles and, and make sure that you can use those data first. And so. Uh, they just published a paper uh, doing that interoperability. Um, and now we're working on the sort of user interface side together um, and this like data discovery hypothesis generation side. So 
it, it has had a tremendous influence on not only the technical side of how I think about things and the software development and programming and open access and open science principles, but also this data science way of thinking has actually directly influenced my research. That is super cool. It's really cool to think that you were able to figure out how math interplayed with neuroscience over watching <laughs> Star Trek with your wife. That's really funny. <laughs> but I know a lot of undergraduate students really want to get into research and sometimes uh, they feel like the gap that they need to bridge to get into that field can be very wide and oftentimes can be quite intimidated by trying to get into it. So do you have any advice for undergraduate students that are trying to get involved in research? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be where I am if I didn't get lucky and get involved in research. As an undergrad, my GPA was terrible. Not like, oh, no, I got a 3.5. No, I mean, like, genuinely terrible. Sub 3.0. Um, sub 2.5, maybe. Um, and the only thing that got me through and got me into grad school and so on was getting lucky and I got work study um, as a first-gen college student to work in a research lab. And... Uh, even though my grades are terrible, uh, I, I have a hard time learning by reading. I'm much better at learning by doing. And so I became um, pretty fluent in some of this stuff as an undergraduate. And that then helped me get jobs and ultimately get into grad school. And so then the question is, well, how do you do that? How do you find those lab positions? And one is just... You know, you have to kind of be persistent. And so you're a major, massive university, UC system. All of us are huge, right? And I, I feel terrible when I teach the undergraduates in these 500 student classes. of Like, I don't get to know your names. It's just the reality. Why are you taking this class at a university with 35,000 other undergraduates instead of at a small liberal arts college where your classes are 20 to 30 students? What do you get out of this? And one of the things of being a major research university, even though our classes are huge, is that the people that you are learning from, the professors and students that you're taking classes with, your TAs, GSIs, whatever, they're doing that research that you're learning about. And so you need to be doing your best to try and get to know them. Go to office hours. It sounds so simple, but students just don't go to office hours. Just say hi to your professor. You know, at UCSD, we have this coffee with a prof program. The university will pay you. They'll give you vouchers to take a professor out to lunch or coffee. Um, uh, you know, do that. Take advantage of these programs that exist. Um, and uh, at the same time, you also have to demonstrate that you know how to do something. And in my lab, the undergraduates that work in my lab, I pay all the undergraduates in my lab. Um, I feel like if you don't, volunteerism, I'm not a fan of. You select for people that can afford to volunteer. Um, they come from clinical psychology, neuroscience, data science, math, computer science. We have undergraduates in all of these different fields. Um, and so a lot of students select themselves away from working in labs because they think they don't know enough um, what that lab does. But, you know, don't, don't edit yourself out of the opportunity before you've even asked. Right. And I tell my undergraduates all the time, like email professors, uh, come to office hours, you know, kind of make your face and name known a little bit and then email them and say, ask if they have any research opportunities. And inevitably, when 90 percent of them ignore you because they just will um, go to the professor's websites and look for the students, the Ph.D. students who work in their lab, the postdocs who work in their lab and email those people because they're more likely to get back to you and ask them if they have any you know, opportunities in the lab. Um, and so part of it is just kind of like, unfortunately, that hustle. 
You have to know how to play that game. You have to know that you should be going into office hours. You have to know that these programs exist to take you know, professors out to coffee. You have to know that the professors will have a website. You have to know what a postdoc or a grad student is in order to find them and email them on that website. And so those are the list of recommendations I, I make to the undergraduates is you have to kind of learn that academic game, which, you know, if like me, you come from a, a non-academic background, I didn't know this stuff as an undergraduate. Um, I had to learn from other people, right? There is There are social norms, there, there are structures that you have to sort of learn how to play within. Um, and once you figure that stuff out, it becomes a lot easier. It's not a guarantee, but it becomes a lot easier. That's really great advice. Um, I guess to end off the interview, we like to ask everyone this question, and that's if you had any parting thoughts or words of wisdom for data science educators around the world. Yeah, I, I don't want to be beating on the same drum too often, but it, think about data as more than just uh, those numbers that you have students churn through, right? Really think about ways of getting the students engaged with the complexities um, of the ideas. And I find a lot of programs overemphasize the technical math science at the cost of an intuitive understanding of why and when to use the different mathematical approaches. It's one thing to know how to calculate an eigenvector by hand. It's another thing to know why you would use PCA and when not to, right? So I really, the, the technical skills, the mathematical know-how, the you know, uh, programming and software development know-how, those are, those are the requirements. But I think what truly makes excellent data scientists that are valuable in our world are the ones that know when not to do something <laughs> And, you know, I think that's a little bit harder in my perspective, at least from my perspective, to teach because um, there aren't textbooks that exist. There are plenty of textbooks out there that exist that you can work through, uh, you know, machine learning problems uh, and teach undergraduates. It's much more difficult to teach them when to use things and why and when not to and so on. Um, uh, but it's well worth the effort. I mean, the number of undergraduates that have come back to me and said that, you know, learning this thing is, you know, got them their job and they're two decades younger than, than you know, uh, than anybody else on their team. <laughs> uh, it's, I don't know, it's part of the job that's just so fantastic. It's so cliche, but it's like so rewarding to have that happen and see that, that it's well worth the extra hours of effort and thinking and planning. Thank you so much. This is a really great conversation. Yeah. Really yes, appreciate your perspectives. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's really nice to have met you both. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you're interested in learning more about data science education resources, Please subscribe to our Substack to get notified when we release any future podcasts. And join our community Slack channel through the link provided in this episode's description. Thank you.